All right, goal this morning is to finish Mark 2.26. I don't know if we will, but that's the goal. I'm not going to go back and review all of the different solutions that we have looked at, the ones that are good, the ones that we've thrown out. I'm not going to go back. This is like part 11, so obviously everything else is there on the Internet for people to listen to. So let's do this. Go to Mark chapter 2. Let's read the text at least. Mark 2, 23 to 28. Remember, this all started, one, because of a paper written for a seminary, and two, um, because, well, this is the verse, uh, Mark 2, 26 is the verse that basically led Bart Ehrman to start questioning the New Testament and ultimately reject Christianity and the authority of Scripture. So we've been working on it, trying not to just, you know, pass over and say there's no big problem, but be honest with it and struggle with all the difficulties, which is what we've been doing now for over 10 plus hours. So, so Mark 2, 23 to 28. And it came to pass that he, speaking of Jesus, went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read... What David did when he had need and was hungered, and he and they were with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was not made for man, and not man, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. All right? Now, we know the problem, all, all the problem stems from what? Well, the verse 26, and it all stems from the fact that it mentions Abiathar being the high priest. Right? If it mentioned Abiathar, there wouldn't be a problem, because Abiathar did ex- live at that time. Right? So it would be very fair to say in the days of Abiathar, but he's identified as the high priest, and he was not the high priest at the time David goes in. Who was the high priest? Ahimelech. Okay, so that problem, again, I still don't know why this would be the problem to leave Bart Ehrman to, to throw everything out, because I could think of a million other issues I could have, but this is the issue. So we went through all kinds of possible solutions, all right? But... We're not going to review that. Let's just summarize this. What are the two major issues that we have? Well, let me do this. What are the three major issues that we need to address? The first one is, why is Abiathar mentioned when it should be Ahimelech? Right? That's the first one. That's what we've been working on. What is the second major issue we have to address? Okay, was it, was it actually sinful or wrong for to what David did? All right? And number three, was it actually wrong what the disciples did? Correct? And then I guess there's a fourth one which we have mentioned. And the fourth issue is, why in the world is Jesus using this story to somehow either justify... Like, what, why is Jesus using this story? Let's state it that way. Why is Jesus using this story? All right, so let's go through those again. Number one, what's the first issue we have to address? 
Uh, why is a biothor, a biothor mentioned here? It's because it creates other problems. Number two, did David actually violate the rule by going in and partaking of the shoe bread? All right. Okay. Three, did the disciples, were they actually wrong in plucking the ears of corn? And number four, why is Jesus using this story? Like, what is he hoping to accomplish? Why, why, why this story? Like, I mean, does it really answer the question? Now, a lot of sermons make it sound like that it's, hey, see, they, they, they should understand. And it, I, I, don't, I don't know. Sometimes I still struggle with what in the world Jesus is doing here, but that's what we're going to be working on. So, we're very close. I think we've almost eliminated every possible solution to the first problem, the whole Abiathar problem. We, we've come up with this. As, I, I, do we have anything definitive? I don't know if you have anything definitive, but we've come relatively... Put it this way. We've made it... We've at least reduced the problem to something like, oh, no, this destroys the whole Bible, to, okay... Maybe there's a difficulty, but it's not to the level that everyone's acting like because there's a lot of things we do know. Abiathar becomes a high priest, right? He was a priest, right? He was alive at the time. So they're like, there's a lot there, and, and we have some other possible solutions. Again, I don't want to go back through all of them. Now, last week, we started looking at the last possible solution, which is convoluted at best, <laughs> Uh, but we're trying to figure it out. And what, how would we describe this possible solution that we ended with last week? Does anybody know? How would we summarize this possible solution? We spent an hour on it. Yeah, that basically, I, I, I know they wouldn't like that terminology, but let's state it this way. That everything here is put here for the purpose of telling a narrative, telling a story, and that each thing is included in the narrative to represent something, to give us this kind of, this representative narrative to kind of explain what is going on here, okay? And so, we'll go through some of the parts. In the story, Jesus mentions David. And who is David, I guess, supposedly in the story? Jesus. Then he mentions Abiathar. Abiathar represents who in the story? The Pharisees, okay? And the Pharisees are the bad kind of, like, priests, and Abiathar turns out to be somewhat of a bad priest because he does what? Betrays Jesus, ultimately, right? Or betrays David, okay? So, that's kind of the direction they're going. I don't want to spend a lot of time going back through this, but I am going to read through their kind of explanation so that we at least understand it, and then you can decide what you want to do with it, and then we've got to go work through the rest of these problems, okay? So I'm going to, if I, if I have to stop here, I'm going to try not to do too much explaining, because we covered a lot of this, but I just want you to hear it. And even this, I am, please note, I have cut and paste to try to make this as simple as I can, because it's just so, like, I, it's just a myth. Put it this way, what, what, I guess the most disturb, or the thing I struggle with the most is by the time you're looking at their solution, if I was to give Mark 2, 23 to 28 to 300 people, 500 people sitting in a pew, I doubt one of them would come up with this solution. And that raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Right? If your solution and your interpretation and your understanding of a passage 
is something that 500 people sitting in a pew would never find. How good a solution is that? And if you say, well, it's a good solution, then that raises the question, right? Which goes against everything evangelical Christians teach. Because it would say that the average person is incapable of interpreting it and understanding it. Therefore, you need basically a magisterium to give the interpretation. Now, this, is, this comes from a Protestant seminary, so immediately I want, I mean, I almost wanted to email the author and go, so basically what you're saying is that nobody can understand this unless someone who's sitting in a seminary classroom. Well, a lot of, a lot of Christians may theoretically say, well, those in seminary do have the ability, but guess what? All of the seminary education doesn't mean anything when it comes down to me preaching and someone here disagreeing, right? Because ultimately, what will they do? They'll decide that I'm wrong. So, so I, I, sometimes I, I, that's the whole thing about the evangelical world that I just don't understand. All the theological education means nothing when push comes to shove, but yet when someone comes up with this uh, crazy interpretation, there'll be some going, well, they've got it figured out, but what does it, does it really, I mean, how does it actually supposed to work? Nobody can ever give me a, a good answer, but let's go through. So I want you to hear this mainly for you to just struggle with that concept. Who can actually interpret the Bible? Those with seminary training or just the average person? And if it's just the average person, then what would we have to claim? That every interpretation should be simple and easy for the average person to see. And then you have to determine, is every interpretation easy for the average person to see? Uh, I don't know. If it is, you would think there wouldn't be, I don't know, 10,000 different Protestant denominations. So I, 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 but those in seminary don't even agree. So then, I, I, it just, it just, it's maddening to me. But here, here's a little bit here. All right. Mark's characterization of Jesus unfolds throughout the narrative as a communicative design. So in other words, the whole design here in this narrative is to communicate something. I, I think, I don't know if that's that deep, but okay. And that Mark is careful to situate the revelation of certain aspects of Jesus' identity as significant plot points. If I'm going to lose my voice here, that would be bad. All right, take a drink of water. All right. In the context of Mark 2.26, we can see two Christological uh, emphases at play which develop sequentially and contribute to the Christological portrait. And here are the two, Jesus as the son of David and Jesus as a priest. So they're like, there's two major things they want us to see. Jesus is the son of David and Jesus as priest. And understanding the importance of these narrative characterizations and observing how they unfold, we'll be able to understand why Mark intentionally highlights Jesus' reference to Abiathar. So Mark intentionally put Abiathar there to highlight that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, and that Jesus is the priest. Does that make sense? Or at least we understand what they're claiming? All right. Then, if you remember, they go through to try to show us that Mark, uh, that the son of David is a significant idea in Mark, even though they have to acknowledge that there's places in Mark where Jesus seems to distance himself from the phrase. However, it's still an important concept. All right. We have to spend 
hours working through all of that. I'm not, I don't have time to go through it all, all right? Um, okay, I'll, I'm just going to read this part. If indeed Mark's phraseology was so careful and his narrative connects connections so intentional regarding these Davidic connections, I suggest that the inclusion of Jesus' mention of Abiathar over Ahimelech was also careful and intentional. In David's context, Ahimelech would be killed by King Saul's order shortly after the episode at Nob, and Abiathar would serve in a more significant capacity as priest under David's kingship. However, Abiathar is not only mentioned because he is more memorable, but rather because of what he represents. In David's context, Abiathar started well and served for a long period, but ended badly due to his participation in the revolt of Adonijah against Solomon. David's anointed son, and as a result of his participation in an association with a plot against the son of David, Abiathar was the only high priest to ever be disposed in the Old Testament. We read that last week, right? He's removed from his office. Right? He's impeached, if we want to use that term. In Mark's context, Jesus is highlighting Abiathar to insinuate that the Pharisees represent Abiathar who, who was present during David's taking of the showbread and participated in his transgression and would eventually be shown to be illegitimate because of the Pharisees' participation in rebelling against Jesus as the true son of David, who is far greater than David and is establishing a greater kingdom. Additionally, just as Abiathar was deposed for his participation in the rebellion, Caiaphas would later be deposed as high priest. Right? So, you see they're drawing all the connection. Basically, David is Jesus, right? David is with his men, trying to establish a kingdom. Jesus is with his men, the disciples, trying to establish his kingdom. The Pharisee, Abiathar, was looked, quote-unquote, appeared to be on Jesus' side, but ultimately was rebellious. And the Pharisees, or the religious leaders, who may appear to be on God's side, but ultimately are rebellious and want Jesus killed. So they're saying, this paints a beautiful picture. Now you can draw, you can find correlations, right? Well, not only are we not sure, but the, my point is, even if you can draw the connections, it is interesting. David was with his men. Jesus was with his men. G uh, David and his men were hungry. J Jesus and his men were hungry, right? They, 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 they both supposedly do something that is considered wrong by the, the priests, supposedly. So you can draw these correlations. They're all great. But even if we draw all the correlations, what's the ultimate question we should have? So then what's the point of Jesus' story? Right? Just to say Pharisees are bad and we're good? Is that the point? Now, we'll read a little bit more of what they have to say here. They quote someone. Jesus intends to communicate what Mark expands. Now, this is supposedly what Jesus intended to communicate. That Abiathar is an emblem of a rebellious and therefore failed priesthood which explains Jesus' present scenario and anticipates his own enthronement as the greater son of David. From this, we can infer that Jesus is associating the resistance of the Pharisees to his ascendancy. In light of Abiathar's failed rebellion and resistance to Solomon, thereby declaring them to be illegitimate. 
This all takes place in the context of the early parts of Jesus' ministry where Mark highlights his annunciation and establishment of God's kingdom and his ushering in of a new age where he is the messianic son of David. This reading shows that the passage is just as polemical as it is Christological and that it seeks not only to associate Jesus with David but the religious leaders with Abiathar. Therefore, as others conclude, the wording encourages Mark's audience to engage the events of 1 Samuel 21 within their wider narrative framework and thus to grapple with the impending conflict between the claims to authority by those who are currently in power and by a new figure claiming to be God's Messiah. So according to this, What Mark wanted you to do is he wanted you to go immediately back to 1 Samuel and go, look, there's conflict between authority. Look in Mark. There's a conflict between authority. Who's the greater authority? Christ is. Who's the bad authority? The Pharisees. All right. Again, there's a lot of assumptions here, yes. There's a lot of assumptions, but... You can see a little bit of it, right? Okay, but again, is the average reader supposed to intended to see all of the symbolism? Are they supposed to catch all of the symbolism? Here's a more important question, all right? Can the text be understood and we end up with the same conclusion and not see the symbolism? Or is the symbolism required to come to the same conclusion? That'd be an important question, right? Because if we can come to the conclusion without the symbolism, then maybe we're there. Well, we still got to figure out exactly what Jesus is trying to do because of all the stories to pick, to me, he picks the most... Why would you pick this story? Like this story, I, I, I don't know why you would pick this story, but okay. All right. They got one more thing to say here. We're almost done with this. Well, they got one long thing to say here. All right. So, ever, thinking caps on? While the idea of Jesus as priest and as the one establishing a new priesthood is often overlooked in treatments of Mark's gospel. Now, I love this because in both cases, they're like, hey, in Mark... You may not see the importance of Jesus as son of David because in Mark, Jesus seems to distance himself from it. However, in Mark 2, 23 to 28, it's significant. Hey, if you read Mark, you really won't see this emphasis as Jesus as priest, but hey, in Mark 2, 23 to 28, it's significant. (laughs) So that's like, so you, you may not see this, but just trust us. Both of these concepts are absolutely critical to understanding Mark 2, 23 to 28. Then they go on to say, I argue that it is essential to Mark's larger narrative and especially to understanding the significance of Jesus' statement in Mark 2.26. The priestly image, though briefly developed, has been woven into the larger tapestry of the Gospel of Mark and contributes to the wider Christological portrait. More importantly, the image of Jesus as priest probably plays a decisive role in the ongoing life of the church, which lives by this gospel. There are five passages where this Christological emphasis is more clearly developed. We're not going to go through all of them because it would take forever to try to see their point. 
All right. So what we want to do is just like, okay, so what's your conclusion here? All right. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're all supposedly in Mark, but we'd have to go through each one and see if we could actually see it. And because just like they tried to do with the son of David, you look at some of them and you're like, wait, that's that's what you got. Okay, so we don't have time, obviously, to go through all them because it would I think it would just sidetrack us. Right. Does that make sense? All right. So regarding Jesus as priest in Mark 2, 23 to 28 and placing himself within the role of the one justifying or allowing his disciples to pick the grain. Jesus allows his followers to do on the Sabbath what was by law reserved for the priest of Israel. Since in David's context, only the priest could eat the showbread. So what they're saying is in David's context, who's the only one who can eat the showbread? The priest. So when Jesus is using the story to show that he's the only one who can allow them, in a sense, to eat that which they're not supposed to eat. Now that would imply that they're eating what they're not supposed to eat when they're not supposed to eat it. But were they really breaking a rule? Because most preachers approach it that they weren't actually breaking a rule. They were breaking what had been added by the Pharisees. So if they're not really breaking a rule, then why do I need some image of Jesus being able to give them permission to do, like, I don't understand how, I mean, they're trying to prove something I don't know needs to be proven. They say to be high priest in Jesus' first century context meant to be Yahweh's duly appointed, duly installed divine representative to Israel and by extension to the world. Jesus' actions in this priestly capacity, especially as related to his message of the inauguration of a new kingdom, a new order and a new era of history, meant that he intended to change the entire ritual cultic ceremony and to establish a new priesthood for his own followers. These followers are endowed with, with priestly rights by association with Jesus and can be justified in picking the grain on the Sabbath because they are part of a new order and a new kingdom and partake in his privileges. So they're saying the point is because Jesus is priest and is creating a priesthood, then these guys had the right to do this. So therefore they weren't wrong. And that's the point Jesus is trying to make. That would, that would seem to imply that it was wrong, and now Jesus, in establishing a new priesthood, now makes it right. That still raises some questions. Was it actually wrong? Right? The establishment of a new order obviously meant resistance from the, from the system, and in turn, Jesus' denunciation of a rejection of that system exemplified in his association of the religious leaders with Abiathar. Of course, this also involved Jesus' indictment and judgment of the temple in which the priesthood of Jesus' time had long been associated. While only... Look, we, we see this become fully developed in the dramatic events uh, in the temple grounds in Mark 11 through 13, culminating as Jesus', ju- Jesus judgment on the temple and his prediction of its destruction. When, uh, when understood in light of Mark's broader narrative... The mention of Abiathar, the high priest, can be understood as integral to his message, a message that sees the followers of Jesus not only as the first century priestly order, but as the true future temple and priestly order. So basically what they're saying is in Mark 2, 23, 28, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm David. I'm the high priest. I have come to establish a new priestly order. Those are my disciples. The bad priest, the bad religious order is Abiathar, which is the Pharisees. I, because I'm high priest, have the authority to establish a priesthood, and my priesthood now 
they are okay and right to partake of the grain on the Sabbath day. That's supposedly the argument. All right? Now, thoughts on that supposed argument. Do we agree with that? Disagree with that? Does it work? Uh, well, you couldn't, uh, well, in this particular case, it wasn't the, the, the in, in Mark's case, it's not the kind of bread, it's the fact that they're plucking it. Here. Right, they're basically harvesting, which the, 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 Jew, the Jews would have claimed wasn't right. But they, they're claiming that Jesus can make it right, because now he's the high priest with a new priesthood. In other words, he, all those other laws are rejected. Well, he tells a story about that. Right. Right. Oh, you think, you think that's what Jesus is trying to do here? They're saying that I'm the priest and I'm establishing a new priesthood? And Okay. Okay, so you're saying that what the, the, the disciples did here wasn't wrong in the first place. Okay, so you don't think the disciples were in the wrong, so therefore Jesus doesn't have to prove anything. Right, okay. Sarah, what are you thinking? Because I see, okay. Well, okay, okay, let's, let me ask this question. What they've come up with, do you think the average reader would ever discover this, figure this out? Okay, all right. So, so right there already creates a hermeneutic that is not the hermeneutic of the average person. And the average person can't come up with it. Then you would have to listen to someone from seminary to come up with it, which goes against the, uh, everything the evangelical world teaches. Now, people always get mad when I say, like, no, 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 no. I always respect what my pastor said until you don't. And then you do. So it, it doesn't like I'm so sick of hearing. No, 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 no. I will listen to my pastor until the minute you disagree. And then it doesn't matter how many seminary degrees they have. So I. I, I reject that, that evangelicals ever do. They only do that when it goes in their favor. And when it doesn't go in their favor, they will walk out of their church quicker than you can say Jesus, because that's the way it works. So I'm tired of hearing that. So I, I will argue, I don't know if this works. So we'll, we'll keep, if we need to come back to this, we will. Because I think what we need to do to test this, we need to answer some basic questions. All right. So, what's question number one that we need to answer here? Forget David right now. Yeah. Because according to this, this is about Mark 2, 23, 28. They're just using, he's just using Jesus' story to turn it into symbolism. But the argument is, who, what's the first question we need to ask then in this case? Were they wrong in partaking of that in any way, shape, or form? Could you pluck grain? So what, what do we think here? Okay, well, what, what do we think? What do we think? 
Well, I don't know. What, 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 what would you go to to say that what they've done here? Well, I think one thing we can do is if you have study Bible, start looking at any notes you have. Let's just see what the average person says, right? Let's, let's see if there's agreement. I'm going to go to BibleHub.com because that's just an easy way to get a whole bunch of them. All right. Let's see if anybody says anything here. All right. Okay, well, I'm going to start just going through and seeing what, what they've done here, right? So I'm going to start with the pulpit commentary, right? Start with the pulpit commentary. Okay. Oh, what do you have? Do you have a study Bible with some notes? Okay. All right. Okay, well, look at Deuteronomy. We'll just see what you find really quick with this cross-reference. Let's see. And if they were wrong, then how does, how does did Jesus using the Abiathar story help fix the wrong? Okay. If you, okay, Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his hand and grain. Okay. Now, what that demonstrates, because some could argue that they were going through someone's field stealing their property. Does that make sense? So that would demonstrate that they weren't stealing anything. So they weren't doing anything wrong because this was allowed. They weren't using a sickle. They were using their hands. So they weren't doing anything wrong. Okay. So they weren't doing anything wrong from that particular case. Now, the issue is, does it become wrong on the Sabbath day? Was it work or harvesting? Right. Which, same concept. All right. So... You don't have it. But so we do establish that because a lot of people will say, well, the, Jesus' disciples were stealing. Some skeptics would say that. He's not, they're not stealing. Everybody got that? All right, so, so we're good to go there. All right, now, uh, if we, I'm going to just read quickly, all right. Uh, <laughs> do you want to... <laughs> Oh, I, I, I want to tell you what Augustine did with this story, but it's utterly ridiculous, okay? All right. Uh, oh, wait, you got another, you got another cross-reference? I'm going to go look up real quick. Uh, numbers 15, 32 to 36. Okay. When it says, what is good, honorable, okay. Gonna, it has that note, so. Okay. What do we got? Okay, Numbers 15. So the first reference was Deuteronomy what? Just so that people online can hear? 2325. All right, so gathering wood on the Sabbath got him, got him killed. Now, does that apply to plucking grain? Okay, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know if that would be a work, but it would it does demonstrate that there were strict laws on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, and could not gather wood. You were, you were dead. Okay, because they died. Right. Okay. All right. So let's see. 
I, I do want to read what Augustine does here, but I, I can't because it's so over-the-top symbolism. But okay, but let's, let's, let's read a little bit here and just see if the pulpit commentary offers us anything. Okay, everybody ready? All right, so as far as cross-referencing, we can establish that plucking the grain wasn't wrong. However, we know that gathering wood on the Sabbath got you killed. All right, so we're, 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 right now, those cross-references haven't helped us any. All right, let's, let's, let's see what they do. All right, everybody ready? Thinking caps on. It says uh, Mark 2.23. Right, everybody look at Mark 2.23. This is where they pluck the, pluck the ears of corn. Everybody agree? Right? Yes? All right. They say, if there is a rapid sequence in this part of the narrative, the fasting referred to in the last verse may be taking the place the day before. Look back to the verse before. Is there fasting? Our verse 19. Okay. Okay, so it talks about fasting in the previous, right? So they're arguing that the fasting referred to in the last verses, I should say last verses, may have been taking place the day before. So they're saying that that talking about fasting was actual fasting occurring. That's why it was being discussed. So that would may explain why they are hungry. All right, that's that's making some assumptions. Okay, they says uh, they say look at Luke six one. They're claiming that there's, it's the day before. But, so, I mean, that would still be a time separation, but okay. Oh, I know. So I, I don't know if this works. I don't know if this works. I'm just, I, I know. I'm just going with what the commentary. Look at Luke 6, 1 and see if that uh, helps us here. Okay. Okay, did it say they do anything else in Luke 6 1? Did it say they rubbed? Okay, rubbed him in the hands. They want to make a big deal here, all right? They says this is incidental evidence of a simple life that they did not hear eat prepared food, but the simple grains of wheat which they separated from the chaff by rubbing the, the ears of corn in their hands. This passage marks with some nicety the time of year. The corn in that district would be ripening about May. It would therefore be not long after the Passover. The difficult expression, and then they go through some of the issues here, uh, the second Sabbath after the fourth, and they go through trying to figure out all of, all, all of that. On a Sabbath, therefore, not being sufficient evidence, persuaded them to refrain the word, and then they, they go through a whole discussion about why they're using the second Sabbath, but we don't have time to work on that problem. All right. Um, it says... But other evidence seems to show that the incident occurred earlier than as recorded by Matthew. Uh, the fathers are fond of, now, hey, now we're going to go to the, the early church fathers, are fond of spiritual application of this rubbing of the ears of the corn. Uh, it's one, and remarking upon the fact of the disciples plucking the ears of corn and rubbing them until they get rid of the husk and obtain the food itself, say that they do so who meditate upon the Holy Scriptures. Um, Augustine blames those who merely please themselves with the flowers of Holy Scripture, but do not rub out the grain by meditation until they obtain the real nourishment of virtue. So, 
So they're like, the story here really represents like, are you the person who just plucks the corn? Are you the person who takes the corn and rubs it in your hands so you can get the real thing? That's just the, you see where the allegorical method goes? It just turns in, that's not the point of this story. That has nothing to do with this story. So right there is of no value, right? So this commentary does not offer me anything because what do we really need to know here? What What they're doing, is it wrong or is it, Right. That's what we need to know. I don't know why in the world the, the pulpit commentary even goes there because it's of no help. All right. Um, all right. Let's see here. Well, we'll get we'll get we'll get there in a, in a minute uh, because now I'm going to go back and see what everyone else says about two twenty three. All right. But that, that's a good question. All right. Um, It says, these two Sabbath scenes make a climax to the preceding paragraphs in which Jesus has asserted his right to brush aside rabbinical ordinances about eating with sinners and about fasting. Here he goes much further. So if you go back to the the two scenes, right? Um, Do we, uh, we have, you talked about him not, not fasting. Right. And is there a story before it about eating with sinners? Is there one after it? How about chapter 3? Okay, then I don't know which one they're referring to. Anything else in 2 or earlier in 2? Okay, well, that's got to be close to them eating with sinners. That's why he mentions it. Look at it. And he ate with sinners. Okay, so he eats with sinners, which they, 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 they don't like, and then he talks about fasting. And both cases, he's going against their perceived ideas. Okay, agreed? Then that flows into now the question of eating on the Sabbath. Or plucking grain on the Sabbath. So clearly there's the context here. If you really want to see a narrative being built, the narrative being built really deals with what? Jesus in conflict with the religious authority. Now is he in conflict with the religious authority or is he in conflict with God's law? We would argue that he's in conflict with what? The religious authority and their ideas, not God's ideas. So far so good? All right. So this, this one at least gets us, I think, going more in the right direction. All right. So these two Sabbath scenes make a climax to the preceding paragraphs in which Jesus has asserted his right to brush aside, listen to what I'm about to say, rabbinical ordinances about eating with sinners and about fasting. Here he goes much further in claiming power over the divine ordinance of the Sabbath. Formalists are moved to more holy horror by free handling of forms as, as to certain principles. So we can understand how the Pharisees' suspicions uh, to, to basically murderous hate by these two incidences. You can see why they may have been suspicious of Jesus, but before this is over, they're f- furious with Jesus because he's throwing aside basically what? Their concepts and their authority. All right, let, let's see if this holds out. Uh, Mark puts them together because they occurred together 
or because they bear on the same subject. In other words, hey, did these, do all these events happen in a chronological order, or did Mark just group them together for a narrative? Now, remember, the other, the seminary that we looked at don't bro, didn't bother to put together this narrative. They put together a completely different kind of narrative. But this narrative makes a whole lot more sense, because it literally fits the context, right? So let's mark them out. The first story about eating with sinners happens in Mark 2.15, and that goes stops where? 17. The second event is Mark 2.18, and stops 22. And then the next event is starts in Mark 23. Goes down to 28. So three consecutive stories, all dealing with Jesus in conflict, basically with the Pharisees. Agreed? That's important. Now that, that to me, any, now why do I like this one? Anyone can figure this out. You don't need seminary, right? You don't need seminary. You don't need Bible college. What do you need? What do I always say is the key element to Bible study? Reading comprehension, reading observation, right? Observing it, you're like, wait, conflict number one, conflict number two, conflict number three. So far, so good? All right. Now, let, let's, see, let's see if we can, if we can get somewhere here. We can. Oh, very good. So chapter 2. So we may actually have more. We have a healing that happens on the Sabbath in Mark 2. 1 to what? This is good. This is good. All the way to 12? Okay, all right. Are, are you sure? Are there problems just at the fact that, that he healed him? Because usually they have a problem when he does something on the wrong day. But let's just look at it really careful. This could be really good. Okay, they have problems with. But it's still a conflict. Still a conflict. All right, so it's not Sabbath. I wish it was Sabbath. That would make it even better. Okay. But it's a problem with the, with the Pharisees, right? So that's two. So two, one through 12 is a problem with the Pharisees in regards to forgiveness of sins. Can we agree? Then the next problem starts in chapter 2, 2.13, and that's the problem of eating with sinners. That goes from 2.13 all the way down to 17. Then 2.18 is the problem of fasting. That goes to 22. And then 23 to 28 is the problem of the Sabbath. So now, now we got a whole chapter dealing with the same thing. Chapter 3, verse 1 is now the healing on the Sabbath. All right. So now the problem continues. All right. Now, now, this, now you see why... I, I, I hope at this moment, after 10 hours of working on all of this, at least now you can go, wait a minute here. We got, we got some, now we kind of see what's going on. If Mark has a narrative, the narrative here is all about Jesus' conflict with the religious rulers. 
Of which chapter? Okay, chapter 3, verse 4. Sabbath? Okay, right. So he's definitely challenging their perceptions here. Okay, so we at least now understand the context. Right? So that means Mark 2, 23, 28, it's not out of place. Agreed? Fits perfectly. So are these done all in chronological order? Doesn't matter, because if, even if they're not in chronological order, they all fit together. So now, now we're in, we're in good shape. Now, this doesn't answer all of our questions, does it? Right, because what's the big question we still have? Were they sinning? All right, so, so far so good? Yes? All right, now listen. This commentary claims they deal, that they, these stories deal with two classes of works which later Christian theology has rec- recognized as legitimate exceptions to the law of Sabbath rest. Namely, there were two kinds of works that, according to Christians, were acceptable on the Sabbath. What are those two kinds of works that are supposedly acceptable on the Sabbath in Christian teaching? Two kinds of work. Necessity and mercy. Necessity and mercy. That gets into the healing. All right? Now, whether we adopt the view that the disciples were clearing a path through standing corn, or the simpler one that they gathered the ears of the corn on the edge of a made path as they went to the point of Pharisee, at the point of the Pharisee's objection, was that they broke the Sabbath by plucking, which was a kind of reaping. Now, the reason this is important, if they were kind of like making a path, like trying to knock down the corn to make a path, that would be one kind of work. But if they're just going through plucking corn, that would be what kind of work? Possibly a work of necessity. All right? We're rubbing with their hands, right? But that's how they're going to eat it. They're getting rid of the chaff, okay? So it would still be a work of necessity, all right? So we'll have to see. This, this is the argument they're making. We'll have to see, all right? Um, but we do know, what's the Pharisees' objection? Well, do they make an objection about making a path, or do they make an objection about plucking and eating? Well, look at Mark 2, 23. Find the verse so that we can observe the... the, the, the so that's not super helpful, okay? Because if they were very specific. Look at the other gospel references to the story. Do you remember where they all are? Okay, we got Luke 6. Is it 16 or Matthew 12? It may be Matthew 16. I can't remember. Luke 6. It is Matthew 12. Okay. All right. So look at Matthew 12 and look at Luke 6 and see what the Pharisees' complaint is and see if it clarifies it. Okay, Matthew 12 just says it's unlawful. doesn't say what. They don't mention anything specific. Okay. All right. So, we wish it was more specific, yes. But, all right. So, all right. So far, so good? All right. So, um, whether we adopt the view that the disciples were clearing a path through standing corn or the simpler one, that they gathered the ears of corn on the edge of a made path as they went, as they went, 
The point of the Pharisees' objection was that they broke the Sabbath by plucking, by plucking, which was a kind of reaping. According to Luke, their breach of the rabbinical exposition of the law was an even more dreadful in the eyes of those narrow individuals. For there was not only reaping, but the analog of winnowing and grinding, for the grains were rubbed in the disciples' palms. What daring sin, what impious defiance of law, but of what law? Not that of the fourth commandment, which simply forbade labor, but that of which the doctor's expositions of the commandments, which expanded... uh, basically hair-splitting, in other words, they expanded it to the point that it was almost ridiculous, on deciding what was labor and what was not. The foundations of that astonishing structure, now found in the Talmud, was no doubt laid before Christ. The expansion of the prohibition, so as to take such trifles as plucking and rubbing a handful of heads of corn, has many parallels there. So, let's stop right here. According to them, what had happened is the Jews had taken the basic rules, right? Go to Exodus chapter 20. Yeah. Not to do any work on the Sabbath. All right. Now, let's be fair here. Let's be very fair here. All right. Well, we're not going to get very far, but that's okay. This is very important. All right. Yeah, we're almost out of time. All right. This is very important. So I want to make sure we're all very careful here. This is what we've established so far. One, I th- let's, say, let's just try to think of some things we've established this morning. The early church father's handling of the text is ridiculous. Can we all agree there? That this all just represents that, hey, they took corn and they rubbed it and they ate, which is what we're supposed to do. That's the good thing, because that represents taking scripture, meditating on it, and eating it. Okay, that's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with this text. I don't know why. The church father's uh, handling of scripture is insane to me, right? That, and now, that allegory, because what, you can make the text say whatever you want. That has nothing to do with the actual context. Everyone agree? All right, so we reject that, all right? So, second, what we're trying to, this is very important. What we have established clearly is that the context of Mark 2, right, And chapter 3 is that Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders. Yes? And it seems like that Jesus is in conflict with them, not with the law of God. Can we agree that we seem to think that that's the case? Right? Right? So, number three, what we seem to be finding is that the issue here is between Jesus and the Pharisees' expansion of the law. Now, we've got to be very careful here not to just condemn the Pharisees. Right? We've got to be very careful not to condemn the Pharisees because we have to start with ourselves. So let's, let's try to look. What does the Old Testament law say clearly in uh, Exodus chapter 20? The, the commandment. Yeah, just give me the basic elements. What, what does the commandment specifically say you cannot do? All right, so no one can work. And we do know from another example that gathering wood was work and someone was killed for it. Now, now let's be, now, because everyone, preachers always tell the stories 
they always go through all the supposed things that were added. For example, if you, if you were walking along on the Sabbath and you spit and you made an indent on the ground, supposedly that was plowing and you would be, that would be considered wrong. I don't know where they get all of these supposed rules from. They're supposedly listed, but a lot of preachers just make the claim that they're there. I don't know if they've ever verified the claims. But the point is, Everyone in the, in the sanctuary, when they hear all of these extended laws, they always laugh. Everybody starts laughing. Ha, 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 ha. Those Jews were so dumb. Those Jews were so foolish. All right, let's make this very clear. What was the punishment for breaking the Sabbath law? Death. Now, any logical person, when they hear, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath, because you're guilty, right, of breaking God's law, and that could possibly be punished by death, what would every logical person raise their hand and ask? What is work? So let's not mock them for trying to figure out and define what work was and wasn't, right? Let's not, def- let's not mock them for that, because trust me, Everyone does the same thing. Let me give you a scripture. Philippians, is it Philippians 4, I think? Find the uh, the passage in Philippians 4 about think on these things that are pure, lovely. Okay, find that passage. I think it's Philippians 4. I could be wrong. Okay, now this, this, is a, this is a basic verse, right? Now what, what, what's, what precedes the, the Philippians 4, uh, 8? Because it says, finally. What comes before it in Philippians, say, 1 through 7? What's Paul talking about? All right. Doesn't give us a lot of context, but Paul concludes with this. Now, What's a good, what, what, a pre, what has been a problem within Christian history with this verse, Philippians 4, 8 and following? What has been a major issue? It's never ending. What does it mean to think on these things? Right? So, pastors come along. Right? Name a, a favorite book you have. Just name a favorite book. Does, if anyone reads books, anybody got a novel? Well, okay, obviously nobody reads here, but, okay, but, but if you had a favorite novel, okay, all right, then someone could say, does this book meet that requirement? Is it honest? True. Right? Right? Or The Hobbit, Lord of Rings, or whatever people want to put forth, right? Now, is that passage about what you can read? Some people would say it is, some people would say it isn't. And then, of course, we know the go-to, is your music, does it meet that criteria? Does your television, does it meet that criteria? I would argue, does the Bible meet that criteria? Because there's some pretty messed up things in the Bible, but that's okay. So the point is, that gets used, and it gets expanded, and we can go, love not the world. Well, okay, what does that look like? Well, love not the world, when I, when I went to the church in Nebraska, I was told that if I went home and listened to contemporary Christian music, I was worldly. But if I went home and watched eight hours of college football on a Saturday, I was godly. 
So contemporary Christian music, because of its ungodly beat, was sinful, but watching Nebraska play football was godly. If I played cards, I was ungodly. But if I played football, I was godly. If I go to Blockbuster and rent movies, I was okay. If I go to the movie theater, I wasn't okay. If I was a man who went to church and didn't wear a tie, something was wrong with me. If I was a man who had long hair, something was... All of these rules. But every time you would question the rule, they would come back with, love not the world, brother. Stop loving the world. And I'm like, how come they don't, it only applies to the things I love, but it doesn't apply to the things you love? Christians have been playing this game since the beginning of time. You get a scripture, and you use that scripture to condemn everyone else, but everything you do is always godly. If you like Lord of the Rings, you're godly. If you like Harry Potter, you're ungodly. The most ridiculous things ever, right? Back in the... Uh, I, Christian men would do this garbage to me in the 90s, even into the 2000s. Oh, I like, I like NASCAR. Well, I like to Dell Earnhardt. Well, that foul-mouthed drunk, why do you like him? You need to like Jeff Gordon. He's a Christian. So I can only now cheer for a NASCAR driver based off their religion? Who came up with that rule? Right? Like you have to, and, and, and anytime anybody found it that I like Notre Dame, why would you root for a bunch of Catholics? So now I can't like a football team because of the religion of the school? They got? Like, I never can keep up with all the rules within Christianity. There's so many of them. So if, so let's ask this question. We're going to have to stop here. Oh, man, I wanted to finish Mark 2. All right. Well, let me ask the question. If the Pharisees, I mean, if the disciples were not breaking God's law, does that change our entire interpretation of the text. If they were not breaking the law, let me ask it this way. If they're breaking the law, do you need an interpretation of Mark 2, 23 to 28 that's different than if they were not breaking the law? Does it require two different interpretations of this text? Remember the long narrative supposedly created by that seminary and how to understand it? Their, their argument basically is, well, Jesus can, can allow them to break the law because he's now the high priest and now he has the authority. You almost have to have the answer. But if they're not breaking the law, I don't need that long, complicated thing, do I? So let me ask the question. If they're breaking the law, so let me ask the question. If they are breaking the law, how does Jesus telling the story of David and Abiathar fix it? If they're not breaking the law, how does Jesus telling the story fix it? I'm ready to hear your best suggestions here. Because if you read the story, this is the, this is, these are the questions you have to answer. Any, this is basic, like, this doesn't require seminary. This is just any reading person would have to go, wait a minute. 
if they didn't break the law, why is Jesus telling this story? And if they did, either case, how does this fix the problem? Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, and I and I agree with that. My my question is, when Jesus tells a story about David and Abiathar, it either has to it if the disciples were wrong, he's using this story to excuse their wrong or justify their wrong. And if the disciples are not wrong, he's telling the story for what purpose? Okay. All right. So, all right, good. Okay, Robert kind of got us where I was going. All right. So think of it this way. If the disciples were not wrong, then Jesus is pointing to David and demonstrating what, when David did that, it wasn't wrong. So then the disciples weren't wrong. So nobody's in the wrong. Now that would imply that what David did wasn't wrong. Right? Possibly, they didn't always follow out those rules, but okay. All right. Well, yeah, that brings up all kinds of issues. But if David was wrong, then what would Jesus be saying? In other words, if his disciples weren't wrong, no, but if, if what they're doing is not wrong, and if David, what David did was wrong, why would Jesus be telling the story? If neither one of them were wrong, they'd be like, well, David wasn't wrong, we weren't wrong, so why are you condemning anybody? But if David was wrong, and his disciples weren't wrong, why would Jesus be telling the story? All right, I'll try to help everyone out. Would he not be pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? You don't condemn David, but you condemn us. David was in the wrong. We are not in the wrong. You're condemning us. They're they're accusing him of doing something unlawful. But if they're not doing anything unlawful, he points to David, maybe saying, hey, you don't condemn David. So is this to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees? Or is he using this as one of those situational ethics? Like, well, hey, if David could do it, we could do it. Well, I, I don't, I'm just throwing out ideas. Don't, you know, remember, I don't, I don't like to be dogmatic until well, I've, I've confused everyone, right? Okay? All right? Because it's not, I, I, look, I can come in here and give you three little answers and you can say that's a nice sermon and go home. I mean, you know, but there's thousands of churches that'll do that for you. You know, I don't play that game. So we got to struggle with this. All right? So let's, we'll end with this. We'll just go through this quickly. All right? So what, this morning, what are some things I've really wanted you to see? What are some basic things? We just covered them just a second ago. What are some basic things I want you to stand out for you this morning? Okay, church fathers, we reject that completely. That's just ridiculous, all right? Second, we have a context that at least shows us what's going on here. Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders, and we believe his conflict is with what? The religious leaders, not with the law of God. 
Would we agree? Right? Number three, what do we have? We have a very important question. Did, were the disciples in the wrong or not in the wrong? Correct? We believe that possibly the disciples were not in the wrong. And so this is a story of the Pharisees going above and beyond God's law. Now, if that's the case, then the next big thing we're left with this morning is, why did Jesus tell the story about David and Abiathar? If the disciples weren't wrong, why is Jesus telling the story? If the disciples were wrong, why is Jesus telling the story? Agreed? All right. We're going to have to stop there because we're out of time. Yeah, we're definitely out of time. All right, let's stop. Lord God, we come before you this morning. A very difficult passage. But I think the one thing we can take away this morning is that everyone in this room, everyone listening online, we've all been guilty of doing the exact same thing. Taking your word, maybe with right motives, but adding to it. Forgive us when we have done that. Forgive us when we've done that to other people. And help us try to figure out exactly what was happening in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...